This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, December 21st, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. It's been a remarkable year for state-level housing reformers. Several state governments have taken big swings at making housing more affordable and available. They've done so by largely just getting out of the way of those people who want to buy and build. Nolan Gray is author of the book Arbitrary Lines. We discussed why 2023 was such a strong year for housing and why next year looks just as good. Nolan, it wasn't that long ago that we looked at housing reform as, well, we, me, anyway, looked at housing reform as essentially an impossible lift, that the incentives looked like, hey, local communities, they get to make decisions about what kind of housing goes into an area and economic consequences more broadly be damned. And that was sort of, I just almost accepted that that's how things were going to be. But this year, 2023, has been, uh, I don't know, would you call it a banner year for making housing broadly more affordable and more in line with the desires of the people who own that land? Absolutely. As Salim Firth and I characterize it in Bloomberg City Lab, this is really the year that zoning reform went national. You know, housing affordability has long been an issue in coastal states like California, Massachusetts. But over the course of the pandemic, with supply chain shortages, uh, interest rates on a roller coaster, housing affordability problems went nationwide. And what we're seeing all across the country is state legislators taking up this issue, realizing that for exactly the reasons you articulated, in many cases, local governments are not going to act on reform. And if we really want to remove regulatory barriers to new housing production in a way that will get a lot of new units built, this activity has to be at the state level. And what we saw in, in 2023, at least through August, was 23 different states considering legislation to remove regulatory barriers to housing production. What speaks to politicians on this? Because I spoke recently with the House Majority Leader of Arizona, Leo Biasucci. He talked about, hey, there's this desperate need. We're going to start converting commercial where we would like to start converting commercial property into housing. And that seems like you know, it seems like a third best option if you're if you really want to increase housing production. What speaks to politicians on this? Well, you know, I think what essentially has happened is now when elected officials return to their district or spend time in their district and talk to their constituents, the number one issue that they're hearing about is housing affordability. Uh, we've seen rents go up. We've seen vacancy rates go down. We've seen home prices increasingly spiral beyond what's affordable to many working and middle class families. And so a lot of elected officials are hearing this is the number one issue facing my constituents. And historically, you know, this conversation was dominated by maybe the NIMBYs who would show up at the public hearing. But now the the pressure on average working Americans has become so intense that elected officials are looking for answers. And they're saying, hey, a lot of these zoning rules make it really hard to build housing. Let's reevaluate them. So the, the battle has been joined, essentially. You know, at a certain point, a crisis gets so bad that even small C conservative elected officials who would rather ignore it have to address it. So uh, in terms of state reforms, you live in California, you are with California YIMBY. You know, what have other states done? I mean, feel free to talk about the, you know, the leadership frankly that California has shown driven by its own housing crisis, but what's the broad range of what states have done just in this past year? Absolutely. Yeah, so here in California, 2023 was really about securing some of our recent wins. Uh, so we had bills like SB 423 that say, you know, if a project complies with the underlying zoning, you don't get to jerk it around for months and months and subject it to discretionary review processes. You have to issue the permit prompt manner. 
Other bills secured some of the gains we've made on legalizing accessory dwelling units or exempting more projects from onerous environmental review requirements. So California, it's funny because in a certain sense, it was a really, really important year for us. But in another sense, it was a cleanup year, right? Securing gains. But one of the really exciting things is, is seeing reform spread to states like Montana. So as, as my colleague Salim characterizes it, the Montana miracle. Montana allowed for multifamily development in commercial areas where historically we had said the only thing that would be allowed is a strip mall or an office park. Now you can maybe build townhouses or an apartment building. Montana also legalized accessory dwelling units, uh, as we've done here in California, uh, allowing small additional apartments to be in unused garages or, or attics or basements. Montana, like a few other states, also tightened design review. So again, saying you can't subject these projects to sort of ad hoc, discretionary, invented on the fly design rules. You have to actually sit down And if you want to have these rules, you have to write them. They have to be fair and predictable. And we saw versions of those reforms be adopted in states all across the country, both blue and red states. And that's part of the beauty of the issue. And even in red states, you know, often more rural and, you know, maybe maybe more resistant to certain changes. Has has it been different in terms of the, the politics in those states, red versus blue? Well, you know, it's funny because in Montana, you had state legislators arguing very conservative, you know, big sky Republicans uh, arguing for broadly the same policies of maybe Bay Area, you know, deep blue progressives, right? And of course, these two political coalitions will use very different rhetoric. You know, here in California, I think folks are moved by, for example, rectifying historical patterns of segregation or allowing for uh, environmentally sustainable patterns of development to just be legally built. Uh, whereas in a place like Montana, you know, uh, concerns about property rights were very compelling. The idea that the government shouldn't be able to tell you, no, you can't build a duplex on your property when we're in the middle of a housing crisis. Or uh, I think there was a very compelling narrative here of, you know, hey, local zoning regulations make it hard to build housing, which is which is one of the major contributors to our housing crisis. Uh, so you, it's funny, you have Republicans and Democrats advocating for broadly the same policy, but using a very different rhetorical toolkit. And we love that, you know, speak in terms of people's values. And that's part of the progress that's being made. You said 23 states considering legislation this year. You and I have talked about this a number of times about states versus localities. And you articulated that that a lot of this activity has to happen at, at the state level. To what extent do states and localities either butt heads or I, I imagine localities in some instances might prefer that the state be the one to be, in a sense, the bad guy when it comes to respecting people's private property and allowing for more housing to be built? Well, you know, it's tough because we do see a lot of leadership on reform from some cities. So give me an example. Arizona had a big push, as, as, you, as you recently spoke to a legislator there. Arizona had a big push to allow more housing at the state level. A lot of those efforts died. The partisan situation in Arizona was really tough. But you had leadership in jurisdictions like Phoenix, allowing accessory dwelling units citywide. A similar dynamic in a place like Utah, where you have a city like Salt Lake City that's doing a lot of reforms to allow for more apartments and townhouses and, and smaller forms of housing that create homeownership opportunities for folks in 2023. That's great. The problem is that if you want to scale those reforms, you really have to have the state setting basic standards, putting guardrails around this. So, you know, in no state have we really meaningfully taken away zoning powers from local governments. But the state is coming in and saying, okay, this is a state delegated power. And when certain local governments abuse these regulations or use them in a way that harms folks outside of that city, we're going to come in and set basic standards. So for example, 
if you have really, really high parking requirements, we're going to say, hey, let's get those uh, in line with statewide standard and uh, not have, or if you have really high minimum lot sizes, all of these regulations that serve to increase housing costs, uh, the state's going to come in and say, hey, we're going to set a statewide standard here. You can't regulate beyond this threshold because we're in a housing crisis and it's a, it's a matter of statewide concern. How useful in making pitching these arguments? Uh, we're talking about this in December and a lot of state legislatures and hello to my uh, state lawmaker listeners uh, across the United States. How useful are individual stories of people who've made good faith attempts to try to use their property to maximize its value, to deliver more housing to people? How useful is that when you're talking to politicians? Oh, it's hugely impactful. And I think clarifying how the crisis affects different people in different ways. You know, I think part of what's happened over the last few years is a lot of folks who historically didn't have issues finding affordable housing are now affected by this issue. You have a lot of folks, maybe even folks who are the theoretical beneficiaries of scarcity. Maybe they bought their house 20 years ago. They've just seen the price go up. They love it. But their young adult children can't afford to buy a home anywhere near them. They're forced to leave the state potentially. Or maybe they want to downsize in their community, but they're realizing that selling and downsizing is either not an option because the units just don't exist or wouldn't be a very good deal. And so what you're seeing is this issue rip apart communities. I would say another thing that's important with this issue is I think a lot of people just don't know that these regulations exist at all. They don't realize that, hey, in a typical US city, it's illegal to build a duplex or a townhouse in 90% of residential areas. It's illegal to build apartments in most commercial areas. It's illegal to build a a small apartment in maybe your attic for your mother-in-law, right? When you start to show people, hey, there's a whole thicket of local regulations that make it impossible to build the housing that our state needs, then the gears start turning and people start saying, oh, well, obviously we should fix those regulations. I have heard from a a friend of mine who's a developer. You and I are both from Kentucky. So indulgence, please, from uh, our other (laughs) listeners from elsewhere. But a friend of mine who's a developer said that he was working on developing an ADU, a basement apartment for somebody's mother-in-law. And the sticking point was apparently that there was going to be a stove and a kitchen sink in the basement of a home. And that's what nixed the approvals to get that put in. And that that just strikes me as bonkers. I, I mean, it's bizarre, right? Because if you were to just be installing a personal basement bar, it would be no issue. But then if it becomes a separate unit, even a unit that's fully compliant with all building code and, safe, and safety regulations, oh, well, it's a separate unit. This becomes a, a duplex or this becomes an unpermitted ADU. And we're going to make your life very difficult. It's absolutely key, I think, especially for, for stuff like ADUs, where it might just be a homeowner building it to make the process as easy as possible and to set clear standards that are rooted in specific health and safety concerns and not these broader regulatory thickets that hold back uh, ADUs or other small projects. So going forward, 2024, the housing crisis has largely not abated. We're still dramatically underproducing housing. I don't see any reason why 2024 won't be a better year for housing reform than 2023. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think a few places really did have transformative changes. Talked about Montana, Washington here also on the West Coast, you know, switching back and forth between red states and blue states. Washington had a really transformative year. But in a lot of states, I think they were testing the waters on this issue. You know, there were big zoning fights in in places like New York, Colorado, Arizona, uh, Texas, 
in the context of Texas, you know, they did have a few small, but I think very important wins. In 2024 and 2025, zoning reform is going to be coming back in those states. Uh, and I think, as you mentioned, as housing affordability just gets worse and the housing shortage uh, deepens, I think there's going to be more and more of an onus on legislators to actually address this issue. And the good thing now is that we now have a stable of states that have adopted these reforms, I think, to enormous success. And, and not only have elected officials who lead on this issue not been punished, in many cases, they're seen as leaders on one of the most important issues facing their constituents. And so I think, you know, as successes in places like this year, California, Washington, Montana, also big changes happening in places like Rhode Island and Vermont, as these reforms take root and, and, and succeed, I think you'll see more states follow. So for state lawmakers or local elected officials, if they wanted to take the least obstructed path toward delivering a disproportionate punch on behalf of, of delivering more housing to people in local communities, what are the few reforms that can either be done at the state or local level that you think are just absolutely essential? That's a really great question. I would say the reforms that I've seen that have had the biggest impact so far, one is California's legalization of accessory dwelling units beginning in 2017. This has created an estimated 80,000 new units across California. These are inherently affordable units that were built at no cost to the taxpayer just by homeowners adding an additional unit in their backyard. That's low-hanging fruit. Removing rules that force home prices to be higher than consumers might otherwise prefer. So let home buyers make decisions about how much parking there's going to be or how large the lot size is going to be. I always point to the case of Houston. In 1998, they reduced minimum lot sizes citywide from 5,000 square feet to 1,400 square feet. And this kicked off nearly 100,000 new townhouses being built over the last 20 years. That's a whole generation of new starter homes that were illegal before 1998 with one small change in the local regulations became legal. And now we have a generation of Houston homeowners who might otherwise have been priced out. I would also say streamline your processes. If housing is theoretically legal, but it takes six months of back and forth with regulators, or it takes multiple public hearings, or you have to do a big giant environmental report and then get sued by NIMBYs. If housing's legal in scare quotes, but you still have to go through all of that, it might practically just be illegal. And so you have to have streamlined permitting. One of the exciting things that happened this year was uh, Texas, uh, House Bill 14, where legislators said, okay, if it takes more than 14 days for a jurisdiction to act on a compliant permit, that applicant can go to a third party and have them review and stamp the plans and they can start building. That's huge, right? That's huge, especially for your small local developers who are building small, potentially inherently very affordable projects. They don't have time. They don't have the stable of attorneys. They don't have planners on staff to go through those permitting processes. And that's really the lowest of the low-hanging fruit. Nolan Gray directs research at California Yimby. Subscribe to and rate the Cater Daily Podcast anywhere you please. And thank you for listening.